Hi, this is Sam Chamberlain, and welcome to Things to Ponder, the sermon podcast from St. Mary's United Church of Christ in Silver Run, Maryland. Follow along with St. Mary's at stmarysucc.org or on Facebook and Instagram. Wishing you peace and good, my friends. If you'll permit me just for a second, I often wish that every one of you could just sort of observe church from this seat, just like once every like 10 years. I'm not saying all the time, but just observe it once because from where I sit today, first of all, I'm like, I just got done with a whole group of new members. I'm very excited about that. Then I'm sitting here, I'm like, I got kids in this section, I got kids in this section, and I got kids in this section. I'm excited about that. I got pots and pans banging in the back. I've got people I ain't seen in a while. I just needed to tell you I love this church. We are having such a good time, both in the chaos and in the beauty of what it is that we do. But we continue with our study called Look Up, spending four weeks, this is week three of four, look seeking not answers to how we grow in faith, but rather considering the ways that asking questions is often a more useful and productive way of growing our faith than just hard, solid answers. And we're two questions in at this point. We began, when we, be, when we celebrated the baptism of our Lord, we began by asking the question, well, who are you? And that there is an answer to that, that you are the beloved child of God. But who you are, then, is based upon that. So what does that mean? Who am I in light of God's love? We are not moving away from that. We're just not focusing on that. Every, for the next couple of weeks, everything is built upon this. And then next week, we talked about discipleship. We said it's the only model that is given for us in the Christian faith for how we ought to be as followers of Jesus. But we said that there are many, many things that are seeking to disciple us. Not just things that we allow into our lives. Like I said, we can hardly do otherwise. There's a great many things that are a part of our life. But what gets to say who we are in the core of our being? And Jesus constantly reminds us, he says, I want to be that one. So what is discipling us and what does discipleship look like? Today I want to start with another question. This is not the question of the day. But I want, to, I want to invite you to consider a question that I get asked a lot. And I get asked it in a variety of different contexts. I am a local pastor, and so people are interested in what I think about church. I'm a, this sounds really aggrandizing, I don't mean it to be. But, you know, I'm now leading in local and regional denominational work, so I get asked as president of the association. I get asked as a church planter, like thinking about what it looks like to have a completely new uh, conversation around faith, and as somebody who's in the community. I get asked in all these places, what's the biggest challenge facing disciples of Jesus Christ today? What's the biggest thing we're wrestling with right now? What's the problem? Because a lot of us, way deep down in our souls, you and I might be doing okay or not, but we can appreciate there's a churn and there's a, there's a dissatisfaction sort of rumbling in the heart of us as a wider church. We're struggling with this. Once we embrace our calling as disciples, once we wrap our arms around that and say, yes, this is what I'm supposed to be, the question is, well, what is making discipleship so difficult? And I don't mean a specific kind of sin, like what are all the sins that we're struggling with most? No, 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 that's not really what I'm asking. We discussed last week a great many things that cause disciples to struggle, voices that come into our lives that have an outsized say on who we are than they should. 
They create greater latitude to shape us other than the word of God made flesh in Jesus Christ. But what is it that it making discipleship so difficult in this day and age? Because we should not believe, let me hear this again, we should not believe that if we just committed ourselves to Jesus Christ more, more in everything, that we'll be fine. We should not believe that I just make the right decision and Jesus is the only thing speaking in my life and I've eliminated everything else. We should not believe that I also will eliminate the demons and the struggles that we have. We cannot isolate ourselves from everything else so that only Jesus is in our heads. Even if we did, that won't solve the burden of being a, G- a disciple of Jesus Christ. The history and the witness of the church suggests that this world is filled with perils that threaten to undo us, as Martin Luther wrote in his great hymn. Perils and temptations that belief will not ease. Even if we are the world's best disciple, we will struggle in that. It was true for Jesus, it's true for us. And we get an example of this in the desert fathers and mothers. And my new member people are going, he's going monastery again? Yes, hold on for a sec. The desert fathers and mothers, way, way back in our history, in 400, 500 A.D., went to the desert because they wanted to be the kinds of disciples that we just described. Eliminate everything else, including the landscape, so that we could be a disciple of Jesus Christ. But what we found there, and as you read these, as you read the writings, and there's a remarkable amount of writing for a bunch of people who are disconnected living in a desert. We have a lot of evidence around this. When they went out there, full of vim and vigor, we're going to be Christ's best disciples ever. What they found in the desert was demons aplenty there as well. And they often arrived in the form of a question, these struggles, these temptations. And the struggle, after they had been out there a while, and you all have been excited about things, and you're fired up about it, and then a week later you're like, this isn't as much fun as I thought it was going to be. The question often arose in the minds of the desert mothers and fathers, why am I bothering? Why am I bothering? What good is all of this? And they gave this temptation a name. The ancients labeled it acedia. It's similar to, maybe not quite identical to sloth, but it's this idea of why bother. The author Kathleen Norris wrote an entire book about this called Acedia and Me. And if it's of interest to you, you're welcome to take it with you. It's on my shelf. She says the word acedia literally means not caring or being unable to care and ultimately being unable to care that you don't care. It causes us to lose faith in ourselves and in our relationships with others. You see, even the best disciples at some point get weighed down with, does any of this matter? And we can start to just feel like, it doesn't. It doesn't really matter. It's not going anywhere. And we start to lose faith. And then, as she says, and I love this, we're unable to care that we don't even care. The desert fathers and mothers, these great saints, struggled with the most basic idea of caring. And it doesn't take us a long time to discover that these ancient demons are very much affecting a modern-day faith. The playwright Wendy Wasserstein also said, she said, when you achieve truth slothdom, I don't know if that's a word, but let's go with it. When you achieve true slothdom, 
You have no desire for the world to change. True sloths are not revolutionaries, but the lazy guardians at the gate of the status quo. I love that. The lazy guardians at the gate of the status quo. Now let me be clear. Acedia should not be confused with depression. A condition that can respond to treatment and to medication. That is not what I'm saying. Acedia is not a condition to be treated. It is a temptation to be resisted. Not a condition to treat. But at the heart of acedia... And what I'm saying is the biggest challenge facing disciples of Jesus Christ today is the sense that nothing can or will change. That what is, is what will be. And that stems from, at least in part, in my mind, a lack of imagination. The church of Jesus Christ in the 21st, we're in the 21st, yes, 2022, but we're in the 21st century, The church of Jesus Christ in the 21st century is beset by a lack of imagination that often shows itself in acedia. And I think that believers, from children to our elders, from non-denominational churches to the mainline, have convinced themselves that what is, is, and there's nothing we can do about it. Even if I am the beloved child of God, as I will say over and over again, there's a belief that, well, that's just kind of it, that nothing can or will grow and develop, not in your soul, not in the church, not in the world. And I see this particularly in our own sort of brand of Christianity, the mainline. I see this acedia kind of slipping in because what we've said is for, for 200 years since the foundation of our country, we said the mainline has set out to be chaplains to the culture. We said we want to have influence in our culture. We want to be in places where decisions are made. We want politicians and government people and community influencers to be a part of our congregation so that we can have a say in shaping the culture. And now here we are in this century going, is this the culture we shaped? Why did we bother in the first place? Yikes. And because of that, I think we are wrestling with this idea that we simply cannot envision ourselves growing more compassionate, more just, and more free from sin, death, and the devil than we are today. It's not a lack of activity, it's a lack of imagination. And friends, the angry social justice warrior can be just as affected by acedia as the unmotivated binge watcher. Neither may have a sense that faith, hope, and love can move us beyond what is to what shall be. And lest we succumb to another temptation of spiritual pride, it affects our churches as well. How many times have we said, well, you know, in my heart, it seems like our best days are behind us, that our spiritual work doesn't really matter to anybody, that creativity and vision ultimately will fail, even if we try our best because, well, no one else cares, so why should we? But what if that's not the case? What if, it's the strongest language I'll hopefully ever use from the pulpit, what if that whole thing, that nothing can change, is a lie from Satan himself? What if it's a temptation and a lie, a misdirection? What if it's actually true, not how we feel about this, what if it's actually true that eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor human imagination envisioned what God has prepared for those who love him? What if that is true? For all we've accomplished and all we've become, what if God is not done? 
that we can't even imagine it, which calls us, by the way, to imagination. I suggest that is truer than the lies we so often tell ourselves and we tell our community. So the monks, getting back to our desert mothers and fathers, had a plan for resisting. They didn't just kind of hope their way to, a, to out of this lie. They had a plan. They understood, and I think sometimes we as a culture struggle with this so much, they understood that we can't feel or will ourselves out of this insidious trap. We can't want our way out of this as much as we often try. And again, I come back to New Year's resolutions. How many of us can want our way to a better life? Eh, not so much. If we can't will our way out of it, we can at least work our way out of it. Our faith, after all, is more than our mind and our heart. It is, friends, our bodies. Just as much as our minds and our souls. And the desert mothers and fathers believe that we could put our hands, our feet, our eyes, our ears, our hands, our mouth, our teeth, and our tongue to work in the service of our souls. That if my brain couldn't get me out of this temptation, maybe my hands can. If my heart won't get me out of this temptation, maybe my tongue can. Underneath all the swirling winds and temptations around us, we can create a rhythm of health that moves us day by day towards the incredible that God still has in, has in store for those who love God. And this is why we see such a pattern of spiritual discipline from our ancient mothers and fathers, and we also see a pattern of spiritual health and discipline from Jesus. Imagine the ups and downs that Jesus would have experienced as a part of his ministry. Imagine just the stories that we've read in the time we've been doing this sermon series. We started with his baptism. The skies open up. They rip open. You are my beloved child with you. I am well pleased. This beautiful thing. And then as soon as that is over, 40 days in the desert being tempted <laughs> by the devil. Remember what we read last week, that Jesus climbed into the pulpit and says that he's the one who's going to bring freedom to the captive. He's going to let the blind see. He's going to do all this kind of stuff. Well, you know how that story ends? He says, we're, God's going to do that for everybody, not just you. And so they tried to throw him off a cliff. If you want to be a biblical church, throwing your leader off a cliff is something you might consider doing. It happened. They wanted to throw him off a cliff and kill him. Because they said, you weren't special, everyone is. There was the transfiguration where he heard God's voice and hung out with Moses and Elijah right alongside of the murder of his cousin John at the hands of Herod. These ups and downs, these moments of difficulty affect Jesus just as much as you. But what do we see Jesus do? We see him retreat quietly to pray. Indeed, it's the backbone of Luke's gospel, which we didn't read today, but it's the backbone of Luke's gospel. Every so often, it says, Jesus went by a quiet place to himself to pray. It's the spine holding the entirety of Luke's gospel together. And here, in Matthew, his teaching is about a similar theme that forms the core of the Sermon on the Mount itself. Jesus says, if we are going to get past the ups and downs of all this, and if we are going to create a steady life where we are moving in positive ways of discipleship, it has got to be by the rhythms of our life. And so he says, and we won't spend too much time here because this Matthew, this Matthew reading is such a popular reading for Lent, and we'll come back to this theme a little bit, but I want to offer something to you. That Jesus says, when you pray, don't go out on the street corner where people like to pray. He says, go into your prayer closet. He says, go into a quiet place. 
And there, offer up your prayers and petitions. And then he offers us this prayer. He's like, well, what should we pray? And he doesn't say, pray out of your heart and just kind of pray whatever it is you want. Not that that's a bad thing, but that's not what Jesus teaches. Jesus says, when you pray, say this. Jesus goes right around the heart and right around the mind and goes right to the tongue. He says, when you pray, say this. He says, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. He says, be reminded, friends, that as you set out in discipleship, you didn't set out alone. You set out with a bunch of people, and together we say, our Father. He says, go ahead and pray prayers of joy and jubilation. Don't be afraid to allow your emotions to rise up. Hallowed be thy name. And don't be afraid to see a world bigger than the one you currently live in. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And if this doesn't look like the kingdom of God yet, well then we're not done praying. Give us this day our daily bread. Jesus is not afraid to teach us to pray about the mundane. Make sure I have what what I need for today. Tomorrow will take care of itself. We'll pray our daily bread tomorrow as well. But for today, give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses. (laughs) There it was. I knew I was going to do that. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Cleanse us in our souls. And lead us not into temptation. Lead us on good paths. And as we'll pray later, for for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Put your body in service of prayer. Develop this discipline of praying all these things, even when your heart and your mind don't want to do it. Jesus strikes this balance between being content with one's circumstances and always imagining a better world than the one we are in. What Jesus teaches us to pray is this far by faith, yes, but so much farther to go. And he says, put your body in service of that. Hebrews calls us into a similar position in the context of a community of faith says, we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. This is where the Our Father comes from. We are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. And so train yourselves like an athlete. We're used to athletes training themselves. Not so much Christians sometimes, and that sends us sideways, I think. He says, train yourself, discipline yourself. God will discipline you. Well, why? Because God's unhappy with me? No, because we need that kind of fortitude that goes beyond our emotions. If we're going to be people who are disciples of Jesus Christ in godliness and virtue and in love. But do so, the author of Hebrews says, with an imagination. It says, looking unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Jesus' imagination, it tells us after the transfiguration, it said he set his face towards Jerusalem. Jesus was a realist. He knew exactly where he was headed. And as soon as he set foot in that city, somebody was going to try to kill him, and they were successful. Jesus was a realist. He could see it, but he could see beyond it. For the joy that was set before him, he could see joy on the other side. Why? Because he was disciplined in the work that he did to ready body, soul, and spirit for the work that God had called him to do. Can we see possibilities in front of us? Are we realists that acknowledge the reality of the world we're in and we can see beyond it the kingdom that is still to come? Or are we in our souls and as a congregation jaded by cynicism and weighed down by acedia? This teaching begs this week's question of us. I saved the question to the end. Both for you and me as individuals and as a congregation. What are the core spiritual practices that shape us? 
Because if we are going to battle, the single greatest temptation for me in this era of, of the church's life, if we are going to do battle with acedia, we must constantly be examining our practices. What is it that we do day by day, week by week, that shapes our lives? The great philosopher once said, you are what you eat. One might say, we are what we do. And some of us will say, well, I already got my little thing going on, I'm set. Well, I would ask, just as a question, when's the last time we pushed yourself? Reading something you haven't read before, going somewhere you haven't been before, praying in a way maybe you haven't prayed before. Let's push ourselves a little bit, but start small. Some of us have never thought about these disciplines, and so it would be enough for us to say, one time a day, our Father who art in heaven. What a wonderful discipline. I can't answer that for you as we stand here right now. Pastor, what am I supposed to do? I don't, I don't know for all of you, but it is a question that we can ask that will start churning some stuff up that will give us a way forward. Where can we be pushed? Whatever it is, keep your muscles moving. One of the great churchmen, Arnobius, one who's often forgotten, but it's one of my favorite things in the world. He goes, we raise our hands so that our hearts may follow. We raise our hands so that our hearts may follow. And as a congregation, it becomes immediately clear that a community that claims to follow Jesus must always first scream at the top of our lungs, you are God's beloved child as you are. Yes, we need to do that. To each and every single person, just as you are, God loves you. But to do this, to simply say to people, we love you, you are welcome here, all that kind of stuff. If we do that without any accompaniment, without any discipleship, without any intentionality towards growth in the way of Christ, we will not have fulfilled our duty. It is equally critical that we are called to create environments, practices, relationships, and rhythms that nurture, encourage, and support a growing spirituality that is in our muscles and in our bodies as much as it is in our souls. We cannot create discipleship. That's God's work. We can only create places to nurture it. But nurture it we must. For all of our advancements, for all of our technologies, for all of our widening ideas about what love is and what God's purposes are for the world, not unlike the world of the monks, so we can equally be beset by demons like Ascedia that are all around us. But let us push back. We do not have to succumb to the... We don't have to succumb to the spirit of the age that constantly says, why bother, it doesn't matter. Because it does. We are the beloved children of God and that is never going to change, which means God is not yet done shaping us into the people and into the community he has called us to be. So let's not be afraid to churn up inside ourselves. What muscle do I need to put on this? How can I push back against the spirit and in that way be a witness for a world that says, yes, these are heavy times for us, but joy sits just on the other side.